welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health and Wellness Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper, and today we're going to discuss a topic that will not only help you become a better coach, but also a better friend, parent, leader, and even spouse. We'll be discussing motivational interviewing, or MI, with one of the world's foremost experts on the topic, Dr. Jonathan Fader. Dr. Fader is a clinical and performance psychologist in New York. He works regularly with professional athletes from both Major League Baseball as well as the NFL. He also works with entrepreneurs, businesses, schools, and healthcare professionals. He speaks to audiences worldwide on topics of motivation, performance, stress, and team building, and was kind enough to join us today for a conversation that is incredibly applicable to every single one of us. One quick update on the upcoming changes to the MBHWC National Board Exam for Health and Wellness Coaches. Most of you probably know the requirements are changing later this year, so if you've been pondering going that route with your career, please do not miss the upcoming deadlines, or you end up having to take more courses and then obviously having to spend more money in the process. Our next two fast-track certifications, if you're going that route, are critical to beat those deadlines. They're scheduled for April 4th and 5th, or you can select the June 13th and 14th fast-track. Both are in Colorado, and details on both of those are available at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. We're happy to talk through any of the details about the MBHWC or, frankly, any questions you have about coaching anytime. Just reach out to us at results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now let's join Dr. Jonathan Fader as he shares his practical insights about motivational interviewing and much more on this episode of the Catalyst Health and Wellness Coaching Podcast. Dr. Fader, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Brad, I'm delighted to be here and delighted to talk to you about coaching, which is one of my favorite topics. Awesome. Well, our listeners know about your background from the little introduction I did, but how'd you end up here? How, how did you come to the point of bringing mental conditioning strategies to athletes and others, frankly, around the globe? You know, it's really funny because I, I, people who are aspiring to be health coaches or coaches or work in performance psychology asked me and are really shocked, Brad, to realize that the thing that got me into this was actually speaking fluent Spanish. Um, it's, and uh, what's, what's funny about that is, you know, that's, I don't think that's the typical um, way that or avenue people get into it. And I, as a, as a performance psychologist and a clinical psychologist, um, I grew up speaking Spanish in my neighborhood and, and, you know, got pretty fluent. And when there was an opportunity within baseball, many baseball teams were looking for a fluent Spanish speaker sure, because sure. half of the players prefer to speak Spanish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so um, that was really the beginning of all this, how, the, how this started. And it brought me into, into professional baseball. Interesting. Interesting. So were you there before you went back for your PhD or was it kind of running parallel? No, you know, I, I, I got my doctorate in uh, university of Washington and then I went back and, and started working in baseball. I mean, there were some, you know, I, I think what's, what people fail to recognize, and I really recognize in my life, is you know certainly there's there's skill and talent involved, but also I just think to be really to have success you need a stroke of luck, and mm. I I did have that. I I got exposed to a guy named uh, to Ron Smith at University of Washington who had worked with the Astros. I didn't really even realize that that sports psychology or performance psychology was a thing. I was just ignorant. <laughs> I didn't even realize that was like a career. I just thought that was something that happened in movies or right. 
TV. I didn't realize that was a real career or profession. So when I saw him doing it, I said, wow, that's something that's, that's really cool. And to me, what was interesting about it wasn't actually the, the athlete part. It was more about, you know, the idea of what I call the psychology of improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, a lot of what happens in psychology is focusing on what's wrong. And to me, what's so fascinating is, is the opposite, is saying, how can we take people that are, that are doing well in a lot of areas and, and create a, a higher level of well-being and, and wellness? Yeah, love that. Love that. Yeah, my PhD was in performance psychology, so same thing and how you pull all that together. And like you say, it doesn't have to be for fixing things. It can be for how do we, how do we go next level? So good totally. stuff. Totally. You know, it's, uh, it's the, so one of the, the forerunners in, in baseball psychology was a guy, Harvey Dorfman. And, um, you know, what he used to say, which I, I use a lot and I like a lot, is that we're not shrinks, we're, we're the stretch. Mm, love that. Who was that again? Harvey Dorfman. He wrote this book called The Mental Game of Baseball. And, you know, he was sort of one of the originators of, of psychology as it appeared in baseball. It started in the, you know, 80s. And, you know, before, you know, even when I came to start to work in professional baseball 2008, there were only maybe, you know, 10 or 20 people. And now every single Major League Baseball team oh, yeah. has a staff. Yeah. Um, up to four people. There's probably, I think, maybe about 80 to 100 uh, performance psychology professionals working in, in uh, baseball. Wow. That is so interesting. All right. Let's, let's jump into one of these aspects. I, I loved your TEDx talk. Folks that haven't seen that, you want to pull that up. You talk about meditation as a mental skill for athletes, but also for any of us. For the person who isn't currently integrating meditation into their life, what might you share with them about either the benefits or maybe we can start with the benefits and then what are some ways to dip your toe in the water to kind of get started? I'm, I'm kind of one of those guys. I, I've read the research, I get it, and I'm just not consistent. So I may be asking this question on a personal level. Well, you know, the way, the way I started, I tell the story in the, in the TED Talk that I had a funny experience with, with being introduced to mindfulness in that I thought early in my life that mindfulness and meditation was extremely weird. <laughs> so I totally identify with people who are skeptics or think it's strange or esoteric or strange or weird. And the reason I thought it was weird is because, you know, my parents did it. My parents were these kind of hippie folks who did and still are, um, you know, these super warm, amazing people who would go and disappear into their room and, and, and do this weird thing where they would be focusing on their breath or using a mantra they're focusing on. And to be honest, Brad, I was super embarrassed by it. I thought it was <laughs> just like this really weird, bizarre thing. And I tried to, I almost tried to hide it. I almost tried to say like, you know, that's like something I don't want to, but then um, as time went on and I went to graduate school and you know, the, the worldview began to change around this, I started to realize that the same things my parents were talking about and teaching actually had a lot of science behind them. Mm -hmm. And that, that people, um, you know, in in every area from sports to performing arts to scientists, um, were studying it, and so um, it was both shocking but also validating in some sense. And so, you know, I would say to people um, that are interested in it that you know the the right now you don't have. It used to be that this information was inaccessible, um, but now um, you know if it's something that you're curious about there are many different resources that you can just try out. I mean, the things that I think that are great right now are things like Headspace and, and Calm certainly as apps. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then, you know, from my, from my perspective, one of the people that brought mindfulness, popularized mindfulness is a guy, as you know, John Kabat-Zinn, mm-hmm. uh, who was a professor at University of Washington, uh, sorry, University of Massachusetts Medical School. And he has a lot of great writing and, and research. And the way he defines mindfulness is simply, you know, the practice of learning how to accept the present moment just as it is. And I think that that's, a, that's one of the challenges that we all have in life is that, you know, we all become overwhelmed by what's to come or what happened in the past. And as humans, it's very natural to do that. And so these techniques a lot are about being able to bring ourselves back to the only, only moment we control, which is right now. Mm, love it. Love it. Good stuff. All right. Your recent book, I've got it sitting right here, came out, what, 10 days ago. It's called Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. It focuses on motivational interviewing. Many of the health and wellness coaches that are listening will be familiar with MI from their training, but can you provide us with some of the key elements of MI and, and why it matters so much, why it makes such a difference? You know, I, I've done a lot of things in my professional life that, that I really enjoyed. Um, and some of them I found, and, and to, to what I found is that for me, the ones that I've enjoyed the most have been tied, Brad, to something that I find a deep personal importance or mission around. And for me, you know, motivational interviewing is more than a career. It's more than a book I write. It's really in a lot of ways consistent with, with my belief about how the world should work. Um, and I think, you know, at the foundation of motivational interviewing is really about, about being kind and accepting to others. And, and this technique um, has been really formative in my life. I feel really lucky because, you know, when I was introduced to it, I was this 19-year-old kid who walked into a, a clinic here in New York City, and they were doing this thing called motivational interviewing. Again, kind of like an obscure topic, but it became clear to me what it was, which is it's a system um, for teaching people how to listen well and how to help people to change, not because you want them to, to but because they want to. And we all know in the research on science of change and the research about, you know, how communication works that, um, you know, if, if someone you're talking to, either a client or a person or a kid or an athlete, feels understood, that they are far more likely to accept information you might have that could help them in their life. And so while we're really usually in relationships focused on what we call transaction, meaning here, I'm going to tell you what to do and you can then do it to improve or get some benefit. This is much more of a transformational approach in that it really bases its, its work on what we call relationship-based coaching, the connection that people have and that that connection leads to change. Doc, this is great. I'm, I'm scribbling here. This is great stuff. And, and I'm engrossed in MI. So it, it's just the way that you're sharing it is, is, is pretty powerful. Can you keep going with us for a little bit longer? Because you're, you're giving us a great start on this stuff for people that, especially for the people that aren't familiar with it. Yeah, I totally. I mean, look, I can keep going about this. <laughs> Three <laughs> hours later. No, you got to stop. Yeah, it's like the first full day long. It's like the, you know, it's the... Uh, Brad's first 24-hour podcast. <laughs> you know, listen, here's the thing about this. It's that, you know, I often, I often think about motivational interviewing as kind of a universal donor. And what I mean by that is that it's a kind of technique or way of being that you can add to any situation to improve it. My, my thinking about this is that what, what happens in conversations between people is that we typically listen to reply rather than listening to understand. Mm. Absolutely. And, and this technique is about learning how to get to that root of, of really listening 
to understand. I mean, what we know about humans is that emotional intelligence or EQ is really important for effective communication. And that at the center of emotional intelligence are things like self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, and motivation. But rarely is there a way to help ourselves stick to that kind of equilibrium of emotional intelligence. Rarely is there a system that help us to, helps us to do that. And so to think about motivational interviewing, one way of explaining it is it's, it's actually a system or a playbook or a style that helps you to stick to a more emotionally intelligent way of being. In that, it helps you to really listen with empathy and to elicit motivations with others, um, to find out what's important to them. And and the idea of motivational interviewing, in a sense, is it's it's a system that helps you to also, if done correctly, self-regulate and realize that a lot of times while we might want to say something, we're really saying it more for ourselves than we're saying it for the benefit of others. Hmm. All right. So how are you using MI in your work with athletes, first of all, but others as well? You know, MI, um, you know, the other thing I like about MI is it's, it's you know, MI was developed in the 70s and 80s by uh, Bill Miller, who's a professor in New Mexico, and, and Steve Rolnick, who's the co-author of the book that I uh, would just put out. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, in its essence, it's really elegant and very clear in the sense that, you know, what you're really doing is very easily describable. You're basically, what you're trying to do in motivational interviewing are utilize a couple different techniques. And the techniques are the, the things that you actually do and say are very clear. One, Brad, and they're called the oars. O-A-R-S, like oars that you would row a boat with. And in oars, the techniques that you would use are number one, open-ended questions. We all tend to ask a lot of closed-ended questions. Well, have you tried this? Do you think that this might help? Um, and what that does in conversations is it really closes people down and it limits your ability to explore the depth of what their motivation might be mm. and the different solutions that are open to them in the discussion. And so simply, we're trying to ask more evocative, open-ended questions. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think will happen in your future if you continue on this path? Well, what's at stake if you don't make a change? What do you, what do you see as some of the benefits for trying some of these approaches? What do you think you could do? What are some of your ideas about what has been helpful in the past and what might be helpful in the future? Um, on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being important, 10, zero being not important, 10 being very important, how important is it for you to try this way of, um, of doing this kind of conditioning mm -hmm. or eating, et cetera? And so that's the O part of it. And, and the, the A in the ORs is affirmations. And affirmations are about, rather than praising people, using much comments that are based on pointing out inherent or internal unchanging positive qualities of the person. And that we know by doing that and limiting praise that people are going to a build their self-efficacy, which is really tied to change. And it too, it's really relationship strengthening. And the R of, of the ORS paradigm is reflective listening reflections. And what that's about is rather than saying you understand, showing deep level of empathy by being able to repeat highlighting certain important feelings or emotions or ideas or meanings that the person is talking about. And the purpose for that is the traditional purpose of expressing empathy, but also we use that in motivational interviewing to highlight important reasons to change that the person may not even be aware of, but that they're talking about. And then lastly, 
is summaries. Um, being able to gather all the information that the person's saying and kind of show them this bouquet of flowers so that they can pick out uh, what's important to them about changing. Beautiful. And, and it's interesting as you were going through that, I said, hey, we have a slide on that in their coaching certification. So we're right on that exact path for you. How, what role for somebody that's out there and they're maybe they're coaching, but they haven't been through a training that involved motivational interviewing, what role could you help them see MI might add to their toolbox in helping other people make the most of their opportunities and most of their pursuits? I mean, I think that, that the one thing that, you know, as far as the toolbox for MI, my belief is that everybody can benefit by getting some kind of, of coaching on MI. So it's what, whether it's taking that course you're talking about, and then even, even further, getting some kind of coach or mentor or a friend that you can actually practice this. I mean, yeah. When I do motivational interviewing training, um, one of the things that we do is that we actually do a lot of what's called real play. And what that, what that is, Brad, as you, I think, know, is that we have people actually practice around some techniques, uh, some behaviors that they're actually struggling with in their life. Because it's, you know, in terms of learning, uh, you know, adult learning, I'll call you guys adults. I'm not sure I can actually. <laughs> for other people, outside, I mean, you know, we know that, that it has to be experiential. And so I think learning these skills from a book is, is a great first step. But then finding an opportunity to get practice and, and get feedback, we know that that's tremendously helpful. So I think any, any experience people can have where they can try it out, even if it's with a friend who's also trying to learn, and then getting, and then getting some feedback on, on how they're doing, I think is a, is a great and highly nutritious use of time. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. All right. I love following you on Twitter. It's for folks that want to jump in there with me. It's at D-R-F-A-D-E-R. And one of your constant themes is listen. We've got to listen. Why is it so important to listen as a coach? Isn't the coach supposed to tell you what to do? You would think. I mean, you would think. And believe me, as a coach myself, I love to tell people. What of to course. Do. It's a lot more fun. It's so much more, more fun. And, you know, a lot of times the reality is, objectively speaking, we, we know more. It's rare that the baseball player knows more than the coach. It's rare that the supervisee knows more than the supervisor or the pupil knows more than the teacher. The, the reason to listen. So in the book that we put out motivational interviewing and in sport coaching athletes to be their best. One of the things we talk about it, our paradigm or our model for coaching is that coaches have kind of three ways of being one fixing two uh, is guiding. And the last is following. And that typically traditionally what we think about as a teacher, as a coach, as a parent is that we're fixers, right? So, you know, um, you know, my younger daughter is a slow eater. And so all day long, we're just saying, you know, in, in, at home, we, spoke, we speak English and Spanish. So we're just sort of saying all the time, come, eat, come, eat, right? And uh, <laughs> she's, she's such a slow eater that when she was little, you would, we had a, actually a pediatrician that recommended we like kind of rub her uh, cheeks as a way to like get her to, you know, remind herself that she still had food in her mouth. Um, in fact, it was, it was hilarious. She would fill her food up with, with so much food in her mouth that we'd be afraid she'd sneeze because then she would like all that <laughs> like just get blown out on top of her high chair. But, you know, the, the reality about this is that fixing is just our default. Like that's where we go. Mm. You know, like, hey, you should do this. And that is effective when the person you're trying to teach is eager to learn what you have to say and has no conflict or no ambivalence in other words, they don't feel two ways about it. They're ready to go and they, they really are ready. They have no barrier to implementing what you're suggesting. 
But that's actually not the case most of the time. Most of the time, people we're trying to help have ambivalence. They feel two ways about it. They're scared. They don't feel confident they could do it. They actually don't think the thing we're saying is as important as we think they think it is. And so that's where these other two ways of being come in. The other is, is called guiding and others following. And so what guiding means is learning how to use those or skills I just talked about to really elicit from the person what they think is important. To try to ask questions in which, evocative questions, in which the person themselves might be able to articulate their or, or speak their reasons for change. And the reason to do this, Brad, is that we know that when they say their reasons for change, it's much more likely that they're actually going to commit to change than when we tell them why they should change. Um, and lastly is following, which is listening well. That most coaches, and, and in some ways it's, it's probably the most important, that you know, I, I was once in a baseball locker room and I was really trying hard. I was doing a lot of fixing. I was trying to talk to this rookie and telling him how he could use imagery and self-talk and all these mental skills. And, you know, he was sort of listening and being polite. And then, you know, he walked off and a veteran who I knew really well came up to me and said, Fader, listen, remember, man, people have to know that you care before they care what you know. <laughs> and he was quoting Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt there. But, you know, in essence, what we know is that people really need to, in order to embrace what we have to say, they have to feel that care from us. And this is New York. You can't walk up to someone and say, I care. Or they walk away, right? so, you got to demonstrate care. And one of the ways to demonstrate care is to really fundamentally listen to people. Something happens uh, in people's brain when, you know, they know that the other pe person is really deeply listening to them. And so following, as we call it, or, or listening well is really important for that reason is that it's the way to create a connection with someone in which you, you differentiate yourself from everybody else in their life that's really kind of giving them advice and telling them what to do. One of the things that we hear from the graduates in the Catalyst program is they see this huge benefit to their coaching, but as you suggested, it's also great with parenting. And the other thing we hear is with friends and in marriages. Have you seen some of that happening too? Yeah, uh, yeah in my own house. <laughs> Me too, my friend. Yeah, totally. I mean, my, in my, you know, one of the jokes I make during my MI training is, you know, that uh, people talk about, well, you know, what are you about using this in the personal life? Kind of, you know, what you're talking about. And, and I, I sort of say, well, sometimes my wife says to me, where's my MI now, buddy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. And, and, oh, that's so good. You know, look, the, the thing about this is, is that fundamentally, uh, my belief is that as humans, a lot of times we're primed for our self-interest. You know, we're we're also very defensive because, you know, it's, it's dangerous to put yourself out there. Sure. And, and so it's, it's really, you're kind of reversing some of our natural way of being to be in this listening stance. But I, I think that, you know, and, you know, in my, in my work, I sometimes work with couples. It's not often, but um, I know about it. And, and what I've seen in the work I've done with couples and what I know from people who really work in family relationships is that, you know, fundamentally fights are not what they're about. You know, fights are not about, you know, sex and money and parenting, right. you know, fights are about a misunderstanding of what is happening emotionally for the other person and about attachment. And so fundamentally your ability to reconnect with your partner or your friend has to do with your ability to really hear them, um, you know, to, to listen to what their position is and to show them that, even if you disagree, 
you fundamentally understand and validate their underlying feeling uh, and what's happening for them. And so I think, you know, motivational interviewing, when I'm able to do it, which I'm not always able to do, I always talk about, <laughs> am, I at home? am I at home, man? That's like the Olympics. Um, you know, this Olympic level motivational interviewing. When I, and, you know, the other thing is, I don't know, there's a whole other style of um, couples therapy called Imago therapy. Have you heard of Imago? I've not, no. Yeah, so it was started by this guy, Harville Hendricks. And, you know, Imago therapy is, in some ways, has overlapped to MI. The whole idea about it is, you know, learning a dialogue, a specific set of way of relating to your partner that, that, that helps you to listen well despite the disagreement. And there, I think there's a lot of overlap there with MI. And one of the things you do there is you listen reflectively and you, and you validate. And so I, I totally, I mean, I really appreciate that question because I think MI has a huge overlap to, to personal relationships too, because really a, a basic human desire is to really be understood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. All right. Let's talk about surprises. What surprised you? You've been doing this a long time and you know this stuff. You're one of the foremost experts in this topic. What has surprised you about the impact that MI can have in helping change the course of our journey? I think what surprises, what surprises me, there's so many things that surprise me. Um, and I, I have the benefit and the luck of doing, you know, hundreds of MI trainings a year and yeah. going around, you know, teaching people from Dubai to Mexico about this approach. I've worked with law enforcement, firefighters, I've worked with, you know, rheumatologists in the Middle East and, you know, sports coaches a ton. I guess one of the things that 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 surprises me, maybe it doesn't surprise me as much anymore because I've 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 been surprised by it so many times, is that when you go and you you teach on MI, there's many people from many parts of the world who notice the same truth in in the idea of MI. In other words, you know, there's not much in common with culturally or otherwise with you know a rheumatologist from the Middle East and a law enforcement officer from Southern California, um, but they both know, recognize a common truth in MI. And so, what's really been surprising is that people sort of say to me oh, this is kind of like what I do. Hmm. So, you know, that a, that a technique or way of being could have a similar kernel of truth um, for people in, in diverse backgrounds, diverse professions is surprising and uplifting. And it kind of ties back to that other discussion we were having earlier, Brad, about, you know, in, a, in an essential way, what this is about is operationalizing kindness. It's about, you know, being... Um, understanding and compassionate and accepting to another human and that that is the basis for a more honest and intensive conversation about why that person thinks that things need to change. Hmm. That's good. It's really good. You made a comment, I I think it was on Twitter, it may have been a a video that I was watching of one of your interviews, but you you talked about fear is a liar. Can you take us, I, I like that statement, but I'd like to hear more about what you mean by that. Can you take us a little deeper into that whole concept and, and what it might mean in our daily lives? I love this conversation. This will be a 24-hour. <laughs> really, you know, what's so cool about this conversation is that obviously, you know, one of the things I know about you as a person is that you're a deep learner and that you really think about things. But the depth in which you're talking about some of the thoughts that, that I've talked about is super appreciated. And in, in a way, it kind of it, it taps into MI because as a person, I feel listened to and validated at the level that you're, you're hearing what I'm saying. 
And so that at a core level, that's MI because it makes me want to give more in the conversation, right? And it makes me really um, have, a, have a, a sense that you are um, listening and affirming what I'm doing. So it's, I appreciate it's just, that. Uh, yeah, you know, fear. So <laughs> an interesting story. I got contacted by a producer and who was producing a show that was going to be uh, on national TV. Um, and it was about um, the Walenda family. Now the Walenda family, oh, yeah. yeah, you know about these guys. They're the you know the high high wire walkers, uh-huh. um, and they um, they basically were doing a a performance in Times Square. And the way it worked basically was um, that they were going to be um, walking. The Walenda family are like a multi generational family where they walk on a on a high wire, and they're you know they've been around for a hundred years. And they do incredible, incredible stunts walking over the you know, Grand Canyon, walking over Niagara Falls. And so they were doing one that was going to be um, walking across Times Square. And they wanted, you know, a performance psychologist to come and, and talk about it. And so, um, you know, I went down to Times Square and uh, I had a chance to meet both Nick uh, and Liana Walenda and talk to them. And one of the things that I learned about them was that uh, they were deeply religious people. One of the things that they do is listen to um, gospel music before hmm. uh, before they um, they go uh, on on their performances. And one of the songs they listen to, I forget the name of the title of the song, but one of the the lyrics of the songs was "Fear is a Liar." Hmm. And when you think about you know what it's saying there. I mean, it was a way to kind of focus them, but it really taps to me. It taps into a core idea that I work with when I'm coaching athletes or business people or whoever it is, which is that. You know, my belief is that humans, that fear is so deeply human, that we push aside fear, that we fear fear, that we try to make it go away. But that's so unnatural because, you know, when we were evolving over 600,000 years and our nervous system was evolving over 600,000 years, that fear is what kept us alive. The, the, the fact that our nervous system, specifically our sympathetic nervous system, was there to activate and tell us you're in danger. And so people try to say, I, I, I'm going to be fearless. I'm going to, I want to push away fear. I don't think that's really natural. I, I think what's natural is to say fear is what it means to be human and the ability to accept and act in spite of fear and not listen to it when it lies to you and says, you need to run, you need to hide, you need to walk away, but to act anyway, which is also deeply brave and human is what is is the hallmark of, of success and successful people. So the idea of fear of the li- fear is a liar is to not listen to the lie that your body or your mind tells you when it tells you to, to run um, from things that could make you a better person or bring you joy or excitement or success in life. All right. So strategies to do that. Are there some starting points? Obviously, we won't use the full 24 hours on this conversation, but are there some, if you've got people listening, they're nodding their heads and they're going, yeah, 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 that's totally me. Any starting points of ways they could start to explore that, reflect on that, integrate that into what they're doing? Yeah, there's so, thankfully, there's so many. And as I'm coaching people, high performers and you know, people in all different walks of everyday life, I, I realize more and more. I, I would say the first step is to realize that in order to, to be able to act in spite of fear, you have to condition yourself. That's what mental conditioning is about. So for example, if you had a goal 
to get to be more fit to say lose weight well what would you do you'd go to the gym and you would maybe eat more healthily and so the same is true if you have a desire if you really really want to not let fear take over your life and to act in spite of the fear it requires a mental conditioning program which means that all the techniques i'm going to outline right now you really need to practice them if you want to get better at it and ideally have a coach so you know i think for most people the things that help with living and with living with fear and and being able to act in spite of it um, there are a couple different things i think are helpful it circles back to the beginning of our conversation Um, i i think actually that there are two aspects um, to help us through fear one is what i call macro techniques and macro conditioning one is micro so for macro it's something that you're doing every day to help yourself to condition yourself to live with fear. so something like that could be mindfulness it could be taking 10 minutes every day to do an, an app like headspace or Calm. i actually really like um, there's a john kabat-zinn uh app that just came out that i really like in fact my one of my favorites is the jkz2 uh, one that has lake meditation and a mountain meditation Another uh, macro approach is having a practice of gratitude. So every day, take, what I do is when I put my kids to bed, um, they say what they're grateful for and then they don't let me out the door before I say that. <laughs> nice. And, then, uh, and, I, and I also, uh, I do what I call is tethering. So um, when, I walk, when I go up and uh, down the stairs in my house, I remind myself about how lucky I am to live in this house. Um, and not, not as a comparison to say, well, some people don't. I'm just reminding myself how lucky I am to live in this house and to say to myself, and also I sometimes think about how as a kid, I didn't have a house. I, we had just, you know, an apartment, which is fine. I, I, I really like where we grew up, but I love the fact that I can have this house. So I'm tethering it to that activity. Uh, and then the other thing is bringing a partner or a friend into it. So texting someone on the regular, say once a day or once a week, and telling them why you feel lucky to have them in your life. All those things, I think, are seatbelts um, to the inevitable crashes that we're going to have in our life that, that, are, that we might call fear. And then in the micro, having something that you do in the moment um, to help you with that situation. So, for example, if you feel something that's holding you back or fear, one thing that's really helpful is having a self-statement or something that you can say to yourself in the moment to self-coach. Imagine like, you know, instead of on the sideline of a game or of a field, that, that you're bringing that coach into your mind and they're talking to you. And so what I say to myself, I say a couple things. One, I have a joke with myself, which is when I feel physiological uh, stress, like if my heart raises before a talk or something like that, I actually joke with myself and I say, hello, old friend. And the joke is that I'm really telling myself, right, this is like my ancestor inside me who's acting up. The other thing I might say to myself is something that Steph Curry says, the famous basketball player. He says, I don't get bothered by butterflies anymore. They just are telling me I'm getting ready to perform. Mm. So I reinterpret physical, what some people might call fear, as just preparation. The, you know, Dina Castor, I had a, uh, she's a famous marathoner, and I talked with her on a, a marathon panel. And what, what she says, is anxiety is, is just excitement in disguise. Anxiety is just excitement in disguise. And so talking to yourself in a way to reconceptualize what it is can help you feel differently. And the last thing I sometimes do is if I feel overwhelmed or stressed, 
I just say an acronym that we used to use in, in the NFL when I was working in the NFL with the Giants, which is WIN. And WIN stands for what's important now. And it helps me to realize that I may be thinking about things that are out of my control or things that have happened in the past. And so WIN can help me to just reset and, and come back to the present moment. What can I do now? You're giving us great stuff, man. This is fantastic. I Again, I'm covering the page with notes and I come in theoretically knowing this stuff. All right. So let's flip the mirror around. You've, you've given us a little bit of insight on the personal side with your kids, your wife. Let, let's turn around specifically and ask, how are you applying your research, your learning, your knowledge, the things that you're speaking on to others in your own life in something that you haven't gotten figured out? It's something that's in transition and, and you're using some of these skills to help with that, whatever it is you're working on? Well, you know, what What I really feel so grateful for and what I really love um, about the work is that it's endlessly complicated. And I think some people would be like, don't give me a job like that. Like, I don't want a job that's <laughs> But like, people are endlessly complicated and in a wonderful way. And no, 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 per- I've never met two humans I've coached that have been identical. Mm. Uh, and everybody has a different, I had a, a wonderful supervisor when I was being trained who said he thinks of himself as a jungle guide and that every single person he talks to has a different jungle. I mean, there, he's been in a lot of jungles, but everyone has different flora and fauna. And so I think the, the way I'm trying to, um, that I have been really working on using the skills that I, that I teach in terms of motivational enhancement and motivational interviewing is that, you know, I, you know, here, look, I have a team in New York at Union Square Practice where there's... 30 of us therapists and coaches. And, you know, in this, in this uh, group, me and the co-founder were leaders. And I find that as leaders, um, you know, there's two ways to be a leader. One is, is transactional. Another one is transformational. And you know, transactional is like, Hey, can you get this done? And I think anyone who can, anyone who's a, a supervisor or a parent um, or in any capacity helping others knows what that's like. There's this strong desire to, to kind of regress to the mean here and, and just be a transactional leader, meaning, hey, I need you to do this. And um, we need to achieve this goal. And so where I really use motivational interviewing a lot, and, and I think still I'm working to get better at it, is in a leadership role. So really trying to make an effort to really deeply listen to what people's perspective is regardless of whether I agree with it, regardless of, of my viewpoint. And I think Brad, you know, to combine what I was saying before, one of the things that's been most helpful to me is actually what I say to myself in these conversations sometimes is I just say literally to myself, just listen. Hmm. Um, Because my mind gravitates to what I'm going to say next. And so, you know, to your question about what what am I struggling with? I think that's a continual struggle um, because so much so that in, in the book, um, that we, in the book Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, we have a whole chapter that's called MI Mindset. And the chapter is about the fact that, you know, you can have an intention to use a particular technique, but unless as a person, um, you're coming at it from the right perspective. In other words, you're relaxed and you're not trying to, to make a certain outcome happen. It's not going to work right. Mm. And so what I still work on is, you know, really being calm and focused and coming to what we call a full stop, really just being there with the person that I'm trying to help or lead. So good. So good. Last question. Yeah. Any, any final words of wisdom you want to pull in that I haven't teed up with a specific question to, to lead you down that path? 
that will help others who are, they're, they're trying to do that. They're trying to help others improve their health and wellness. Have we missed any key aspects to MI or other aspects that you're involved with that would help them help others in this area of health and wellness? You know, I don't know if it's words of wisdom, but I, there is a quote that comes to mind that I, um, that I think about. I'm not even sure who said it, but um, it sticks with me. And, it, you know, I think we have a tendency to try to be the expert and we want to, we, there's a big demand for us to show people what we know. Mm. And I think that sometimes that leads to us really trying to focus on being right. And so this quote that I, I fall back on myself and I think really is the heart of it is, you know, if you have the choice, you have to make a choice between being kind and being right, always choose being kind because if you're kind, you'll always be right. Wow. Great way to wrap up. Dr. Fader, such a privilege. Everybody, again, that book is Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. Clearly from our conversation today, you can tell it's not just for athletes. So definitely worth checking out. Dr. Fader, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. We'll definitely be following you. Brad, it's been a blast. Thank you so much. And hey, thanks for all the detailed work you and you did in trying to research some of the stuff we're talking about in the book. I, I hope it helps uh, all your listeners. I really appreciate that. Thank you, sir. How great was that? Those of you who have been through the Catalyst Wellness Coach Certification likely recognize some of those concepts. The ORS technique, and the emphasis on listening, to, to name just a couple. But wow, what a great mini course on the application of motivational interviewing from, frankly, one of the top minds in the field. Again, his book is titled, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for passing along this podcast to others. And, and a big-time thank you to those who have taken the time to leave us five-star ranking and a review on iTunes as that helps other people to find us. In addition to iTunes, we're excited to now be on all the major podcast outlets, including Spotify, Pandora, and Google. So thank you for your encouraging support. And if you prefer one of those outlets, they're ready for you. Now, it's our turn to put it into practice, isn't it? We learned a lot today about how to be a more effective coach, parent, friend, leader, or spouse. Let's live out that better that will allow us to have a more positive influence on the world around us, starting right now. Thanks again for joining us. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper signing off. Make it a great rest of your day, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health and Wellness Coaching Podcast. <music>